Section 7 of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, Part 1. Ellen Jorth hurried back into the forest, hotly resentful of the accident that had thrown her in contact with an Isbel. Disgust filled her. Disgust that she had been amiable to a member of the hated family that had ruined her father. The surprise of this meeting did not come to her while she was under the spell of stronger feelings. She walked under the trees swiftly, with head erect, looking straight before her, and every step seemed a relief. Upon reaching camp, her attention was distracted from herself. Pepe, the Mexican boy, with the two shepherd dogs, was trying to drive sheep into a closer bunch to save the lambs from coyotes. Ellen loved the fleecy, tottering little lambs, and at this season she hated all the prowling beasts of the forest. From this time on for weeks the flock would be besieged by wolves, lions, bears, the last of which were often bold and dangerous. The old grizzlies that killed the ewes to eat only the milk bags were particularly dreaded by Ellen. She was a good shot with a rifle, but had orders from her father to let the bears alone. Fortunately, such sheep-killing bears were but few, and were left to be hunted by men from the ranch. Mexican sheep-herders could not be depended upon to protect their flocks from bears. Ellen helped Pepe drive in the stragglers, and she took several shots at coyotes, skulking along the edge of the brush. The open glade in the forest was favorable for herding the sheep at night, and the dogs could be depended upon to guard the flock, and in most cases to drive predatory beasts away. After this task, which brought the time to sunset, Ellen had supper to cook and eat. Darkness came, and a cool night wind set in. Here and there a lamb bleated plaintively. With her work done for the day, Ellen sat before a ruddy campfire, and found her thoughts again centering around the singular adventure that had befallen her. Disdainfully, she strove to think of something else, but there was nothing that could dispel the interest of her meeting with Jean Isbel. Thereupon she impatiently surrendered to it, and recalled every word and action which she could remember. And in the process of this meditation she came to an action of hers, recollection of which brought the blood tingling to her neck and cheeks, so unusually and burningly that she covered them with her hands. What did he think of me, she mused doubtfully. It did not matter what he thought, but she could not help wondering. And when she came to the memory of his kiss, she suffered more than the sensation of throbbing scarlet cheeks. Scornfully and bitterly she burst out, Sure he couldn't have thought much good of me. The half-hour following this reminiscence was far from being pleasant. Proud, passionate, strong-willed Ellen Jorth found herself a victim of conflicting emotions. The event of the day was too close. She could not understand it. Disgust and disdain and scorn could not make this meeting with Jean Isabel as if it had never been. Pride could not efface it from her mind. The more she reflected, the harder she tried to forget, the stronger grew a significance of interest. And when a hint of this dawned upon her consciousness, she resented it so forcefully 
that she lost her temper, scattered the campfire, and went into the little teepee tent to roll in her blankets. Thus settled, snug and warm for the night, with a shepherd dog curled at the opening of her tent, she shut her eyes and confidently bade sleep end her perplexities. But sleep did not come at her invitation. She found herself wide awake, keenly sensitive to the sputtering of the campfire, the tinkling of the bells on the rams, the bleating of lambs, the sough of wind in the pines, and the hungry sharp bark of coyotes off in the distance. Darkness was no respecter of her pride. The lonesome night, with its emphasis on solitude, seemed to induce clamoring and strange thoughts, a confusing ensemble of all those that had annoyed her during the daytime. Not for long hours did sheer weariness bring her to slumber. Ellen awakened late and failed of her usual alacrity. Both Pepe and the shepherd dog appeared to regard her with surprise and solicitude. Ellen's spirit was low this morning. Her blood ran sluggishly. She had to fight a mournful tendency to feel sorry for herself. At first, she was not very successful. There seemed to be some kind of pleasure and reveling in melancholy which her common sense told her had no reason for existence. But states of mind persisted in spite of common sense. Pepe, when is Antonio coming back? she asked. The boy could not give her a satisfactory answer. Ellen had willingly taken the sheepherder's place for a few days, but now she was impatient to go home. She looked down the green and brown aisles of the forest until she was tired. Antonio did not return. Ellen spent the day with the sheep, and in the manifold task of caring for a thousand newborn lambs, she forgot herself. This day saw the end of lambing time for that season. The forest resounded to the babble of blahs and bleats. When night came, she was glad to go to bed, for what with loss of sleep and weariness, she could scarcely keep her eyes open. The following morning she awakened early, bright, eager, expectant, full of bounding life, strangely aware of the beauty and sweetness of the scented forest, strangely conscious of some nameless stimulus to her feelings. Not long was Ellen in associating this new and delightful variety of sensations with the fact that Jean Isabel had set today for his ride up to the rim to see her. Ellen's joyousness fled. Her smiles faded. The spring morning lost its magic radiance. Sure, there's no sense in my lying to myself, she soliloquized thoughtfully. It's queer of me, feeling glad about him, without knowing. Lord, I must be lonesome. To be glad to see an Isbel, even if he is different. Soberly, she accepted the astounding reality. Her confidence died with her gaiety. Her vanity began to suffer. And she caught at her admission that Jean Isabel was different. She resented it in amaze. She ridiculed it. She laughed at her naive confession. She could arrive at no conclusion other than she was a weak-minded, fluctuating, inexplicable little fool. But for all that, she found her mind had been made up for her without consent or desire before her will had been consulted, and that inevitably and unalterably she meant to see Jean Isbel again. 
Long she battled with this strange decree. One moment she won a victory over this new, curious self, only to lose it the next. And at last, out of her conflict, there emerged a few convictions that left her with some shreds of pride. She hated all Isbels. She hated any Isbel, and particularly she hated Jean Isbel. She was only curious, intensely curious, to see if he would come back, and if he did come, what would he do? She wanted only to watch him from some covert. She would not go near him, not let him see her or guess of her presence. Thus she assuaged her hurt vanity. Thus she stifled her miserable doubts. Long before the sun had begun to slant westward toward the mid-afternoon, Jean Isabel had set as a meeting time, Ellen directed her steps through the forest to the rim. She felt ashamed of her eagerness. She had a guilty conscience that no strange thrills could silence. It would be fun to see him, to watch him, to let him wait for her, to fool him. Like an Indian, she chose the soft pine-needle mats to tread upon, and her light moccasined feet left no trace. Like an Indian also, she made a wide detour and reached the rim a quarter of a mile west of the spot where she had talked with Jean Isabel, and here, turning east, she took care to step on the bare stones. This was an adventure, seemingly the first she had ever had in her life. Assuredly, she had never before come directly to the rim without halting to look, to wonder, to worship. This time she scarcely glanced into the blue abyss. All absorbed was she in hiding her tracks. Not one chance in a thousand would she risk. The Jorth pride burned even while the feminine side of her dominated her actions. She had some difficult rocky points to cross, then windfalls to round, and at length reached the covert she desired. A rugged yellow point of the rim stood somewhat higher than the spot Ellen wanted to watch. A dense thicket of jack pines grew to the very edge. It afforded an ambush that even the Indian eyes Jean Isabel was credited with could never penetrate. Moreover, if by accident she had made a noise and excited suspicion, she could retreat unobserved and hide in the huge rocks below the rim, where a ferret could not locate her. With her plan decided upon, Ellen had nothing to do but wait, so she repaired to the other side of the pine thicket and to the edge of the rim where she could watch and listen. She knew that long before she saw Isbel she would hear his horse. It was altogether unlikely that he would come on foot. "'Sure, Ellen Jorth, you're a queer girl,' she mused. "'I reckon I wasn't well acquainted with you.' Beneath her yawned a wonderful deep canyon, rugged and rocky, with but few pines on the north slope, thick with dark green timber on the south slope. Yellow and gray crags, like turreted castles, stood up out of the sloping forest on the side opposite her. The trees were all sharp, spear-pointed, Patches of light green aspens showed strikingly against the dense black. The great slope beneath Ellen was serrated with narrow, deep gorges, almost canyons in themselves. Shadows alternated with clear, bright spaces. The mile-wide mouth of the canyon 
opened upon the basin, down into a world of wild, timbered ranges and ravines, valleys and hills that rolled and tumbled in dark green waves to the Sierra Anches. But for once Ellen seemed singularly unresponsive to this panorama of wildness and grandeur. Her ears were like those of a listening deer, and her eyes continually reverted to the open places along the rim. At first, in her excitement, time flew by. Gradually, however, as the sun moved westward, she began to be restless. The soft thud of dropping pine cones, the rustling of squirrels up and down the shaggy barked spruces, the crackling of weathered bits of rocks, these caught her keen ears many times and brought her up erect and thrilling. Finally, she heard a sound which resembled that of an unshod hoof on stone. Stealthily, then, she took her rifle and slipped back through the pine thicket to the spot she had chosen. The little pines were so close together that she had to crawl between their trunks. The ground was covered with a soft bed of pine needles, brown and fragrant. In her hurry, she pricked her ungloved hand on a sharp pine cone and drew the blood. She sucked the tiny wound. "'Sure I'm wondering if that's a bad omen,' she muttered, darkly thoughtful. Then she resumed her sinuous approach to the edge of the thicket, and presently reached it. Ellen lay flat a moment to recover her breath, then raised herself on her elbows. Through an opening in the fringe of buckbrush, she could plainly see the promontory where she had stood with Jean Isabel, and also the approaches by which he might come. Rather nervously, she realized that her covert was hardly more than a hundred feet from the promontory. It was imperative that she be absolutely silent. Her eyes searched the openings along the rim. The gray form of a deer crossed one of these, and she concluded it had made the sound she had heard. Then she lay down more comfortably and waited. Resolutely she held, as much as possible, to her sensorial perceptions. The meaning of Ellen Jorth lying in ambush just to see an Isabel was a conundrum she refused to ponder in the present. She was doing it, and the physical act had its fascination. Her ears, attuned to all the sounds of the lonely forest, caught them and arranged them according to her knowledge of woodcraft. A long hour passed. The sun had slanted to a point halfway between the zenith and the horizon. Suddenly a thought confronted Ellen Jorth. He's not coming, she whispered. The instant that idea presented itself, she felt a blank sense of loss, a vague regret, something that must have been disappointment. Unprepared for this, she was held by surprise for a moment, and then she was stunned. Her spirit, swift and rebellious, had no time to rise in her defense. She was a lonely, guilty, miserable girl, too weak for pride to uphold, too fluctuating to know her real self. She stretched there, burying her face in the pine needles, digging her fingers into them, wanting nothing so much as that they might hide her. The moment was incomprehensible to Ellen and utterly intolerable. The sharp pine needles piercing her wrists and cheeks and her hot heaving breast seemed to give her exquisite relief. 
The shrill snort of a horse sounded near at hand. With a shock, Ellen's body stiffened. Then she quivered a little, and her feelings underwent swift change. Cautiously and noiselessly, she raised herself upon her elbows and peeped through the opening in the brush. She saw a man tying a horse to a bush somewhat back from the rim. Drawing a rifle from its saddle sheath, he threw it in the hollow of his arm and walked to the edge of the precipice. He gazed away across the basin and appeared lost in contemplation or thought. Then he turned to look back into the forest, as if he expected someone. Ellen recognized the lithe figure, the dark face so like an Indian's. It was Isbel. He had come. Somehow his coming seemed wonderful and terrible. Ellen shook as she leaned on her elbows. Jean Isabel, true to his word, in spite of her scorn, had come back to see her. The fact seemed monstrous. He was an enemy of her father. Long had range rumor been bandied from lip to lip. Old Gas Isabel had sent for his Indian son to fight the Jorths. Jean Isabel, son of a Texan, unerring shot, peerless tracker, a bad and dangerous man. Then there flashed over Ellen a burning thought. If it were true, if he was an enemy of her father's, if a fight between Jorth and Isbel was inevitable, she ought to kill this Jean Isbel right there in his tracks as he boldly and confidently waited for her. Fool he was to think she would come. Ellen sank down and dropped her head until the strange tremor of her arms ceased. That dark and grim flash of thought retreated. She had not come to murder a man from ambush, but only to watch him, to try to see what he meant, what he thought, to allay a strange curiosity. After a while she looked again. Isabel was sitting on an upheaved section of the rim, in a comfortable position from which she could watch the openings in the forest and gaze as well across the west curve of the basin to the Mazatals. He had composed himself to wait. He was clad in a buckskin suit, rather new, and it certainly showed off to advantage compared with the ragged and soiled apparel Ellen remembered. He did not look so large. Ellen was used to the long, lean, rangy Arizonians and Texans. This man was built differently. He had the widest shoulder of any man she had ever seen, and they made him appear rather short. But his lithe, powerful limbs proved he was not short. Whenever he moved, the muscles rippled. His hands were clasped round a knee, brown sinewy hands, very broad and fitting the thick muscular wrists. His collar was open, and he did not wear a scarf as did the men Ellen knew. Then her intense curiosity at last brought her steady gaze to Jean Isabel's head and face. He wore a cap, evidently of some thin fur. His hair was straight and short, and in color a dead raven black. His complexion was dark, clear tan, with no traces of red. He did not have the prominent cheekbones nor the high-bridged nose, usual with white men who were part Indian. Still he had the Indian look. Ellen caught that in the dark, intent, piercing eyes in the wide, level, thoughtful brows, in the stern impassiveness of his smooth face. He had a straight, sharp-cut profile. 
Ellen whispered to herself, I saw him right the other day, only I'd not admit it. The finest-looking man I ever saw in my life is a damned Isbel. Was that what I came out here for? She lowered herself once more, and folding her arms under her breasts, she reclined comfortably on them, and searched out a smaller peephole from which she could spy upon Isbel. As she watched him, the new and perplexing side of her mind waxed busier. Why had he come back? What did he want of her? Acquaintance, friendship, was impossible for them. He had been respectful, deferential toward her in a way that had strangely pleased until the surprising moment when he had kissed her. That had only disrupted her rather dreamy pleasure in a situation she had not experienced before. All the men she had met in this wild country were rough and bold. Most of them had wanted to marry her, and, failing that, they had persisted in amorous attentions not particularly flattering or honorable. They were a bad lot, and contact with them had dulled some of her sensibilities. But this Jean Isabel had seemed a gentleman. She struggled to be fair, trying to forget her antipathy, as much to understand herself as to give him due credit. True, he had kissed her, crudely and forcibly, but that kiss had not been an insult. Ellen's finer feelings forced her to believe this. She remembered the honest amaze and shame and contrition with which he had faced her, trying awkwardly to explain his bold act. Likewise, she recalled the subtle swift change in him at her words, Oh, I've been kissed before. She was glad she had said that. Still, was she glad after all? She watched him. Every little while he shifted his gaze from the blue gulf beneath him to the forest. When he turned thus, the sun shone on his face, and she caught the piercing gleam of his dark eyes. She saw, too, that he was listening, watching and listening for her. Ellen had to still a tumult within her. It made her feel very young, very shy, very strange. All the while she hated him, because he manifestly expected her to come. Several times he rose and walked a little way into the woods. The last time he looked at the westering sun and shook his head. His confidence had gone. Then he sat and gazed down into the void. But Ellen knew he did not see anything there. He seemed an image carved in the stone of the rim, and he gave Ellen a singular impression of loneliness and sadness. Was he thinking of the miserable battle his father had summoned him to lead, of what it would cost, of its useless pain and hatred? Ellen seemed to divine his thoughts. In that moment she softened toward him, and in her soul quivered and stirred an intangible something that was like pain, that was too deep for her understanding. But she felt sorry for an Isabel until the old pride resurged. What if he admired her? She remembered his interest, the wonder and admiration, the growing light in his eyes, and it had not been repugnant to her until he disclosed his name. What's in a name, she mused, recalling poetry learned in her girlhood. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. He's an Isabel, yet he might be splendid, noble. Bah, he's not. 
and I'd hate him anyhow. End of chapter 4, part 1